Well, I'm glad to be uh, part of this journey on talk through grace, about halfway through it. And in some ways, it's like a back to the basics, you know, childlike faith, grace, but it's also like a postgraduate course that you never quite get. And uh, that's what it's been for me. But on the kids' side of things, ran across some questions and letters that children write and uh, just, uh, you know, they're honest, which I think is the greatest thing about the uh, search for grace. Dear God, if you let the dinosaurs not extinct, we would not have a country. You did the right thing. From Jonathan. And dear God, instead of letting people die and having to make new ones, why don't you just keep the old ones you got now? It's a great question. Dear God, I bet it's really hard for you to love all of everyone in the world. There are only four people in our family and I can never do it. Uh, dear God, if you give me a genie lamp like Aladdin, I will give you anything you want, except my money or my chess set. <laughs> and dear God, please send Dennis Clark to a different camp this year. <laughs> dear God, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works with my brother Larry. And finally, um, dear God, please put another holiday between Christmas and Easter. There's nothing good in there right now. <laughs> Amen to that. Well, you know, kids inherited something. Questions, you know, ever since the Garden of Eden, questions. Serpent tempted Eve and Adam with the question, you know, would God really want that? for you. If he was really good, if he really cared, and we sort of had, have inherited the whole thing, it's just clear that we are not, our ways are not his ways, and we wish they were more our ways. And I think no places that show up more than when we talk about grace. Grace is not our way, and it's God's way. And sometimes, you know, we, we can uh, get the principles of it. We've been dealing a lot in the kind of a theology of grace. And Jesus expands in his words, especially the Sermon on the Mount, what the Old Testament begins to say. And, you know, you can theologize some of it, love your enemies, turn the other cheek. Yeah, but, you know, and, but then when he starts to tell parables or stories or do things like tell a rich young ruler to sell all you have and give to the poor, and it's hard to argue then. And it's true, his ways are not our ways. And what I find is when it comes to grace, it's especially true. The parables and things that Jesus talks about grace are the ones I like the least. And one of them comes to my mind is, you know, that story about the, the vineyard, the workers, and this guy who wants to go and get day labor, and so he goes at six in the morning, and he hires up who will ever work for the day, he promises them a day's wages, and so those who are there at six are very happy to join on and get a day's worth of work. And, and then he comes back at nine, and there's still some people there who haven't gone off for work, and he says, hey, if you want to work, come with me, and I'll hire you for the day. And so they come and noon he comes back, gets some more. Three o'clock he goes back again and there's still people hanging around. He says, hey, if you want to work, come with me. And it's really not a problem at, for anybody at this point, you know, more hands, less uh, labor. And, and all the way to five o'clock, an hour before closing, he still goes and grabs people. And so now it comes to pay them. You know, you, you, uh, 
get paid for the day at the end of the day and so the five o'clock people come first who've only worked an hour and he pays them a full day's wage. No problem, right? Because I've worked three hours so that means I'm going to get like three days and he lines up those people next and he pays them the same amount. And then those who work six hours and nine and, and now people are not happy about it. All of a sudden this blessing turned into a curse. And he said, well, hey, I, didn't I promise you even the first one's a day's wage. So what is the problem? And I don't know if you see a problem with that story. You imagine um, what's going to happen on day two for that guy. Who's going to show up at six? You can't run a business like this. It's preposterous. It's foolish. And it's a story that he really doesn't explain as he tells it. It's just it starts to tap into this whole thing of grace. And why I don't like it very much. And then there's this other story. It's probably more familiar. The prodigal son. You know, it's a warm, heartwarming story for us. And yet if you think about it, it's a foolish story. A father sells half of everything he owns just because his teenage son has this harebrained ID he wants his inheritance now. And it's not like he just pulls it out of the bank. He has to, he has to uh, release assets and the earning power and he gives it to him. And for those of you who've been around teenagers a lot, you know, uh, it's not really a surprise what the kid does with it. He squanders it all away. And then he comes back. And when he comes back, the father has got no words for him, no like lessons learned or, you know, uh, contract for re-entry. It's just throwing a party and killing the fatted uh, lamb, cow, I don't remember what it was, calf. Okay. Is that halfway between a cow and a lamb? Okay. <laughs> you wouldn't know I grew up on a farm. But it's a... It, it's a crazy story. It's not a good parenting model. <laughs> and I have never liked the story about grace. That began to change. Several years ago, Han and I opened a home for boys coming out of juvenile jails. We really believed this was the thing we were supposed to do, and we were excited about it. In 1990, started taking in seven boys at a time and living with us. And so our daughter's now 23, and our son is 22. He wasn't even born yet. And, um, and it was the most painful thing I've ever done, mostly because I really believed that this was what was needed. You know, it's like a chanting house, but, you know, just we ran it as a family. And yet I, I failed at it so miserably. It just wasn't me in a lot of ways. Uh, I left my job as a stockbroker to work with troubled kids, and then I you know, been traveling, speaking to, Tom and I used to speak at camps all over the place, and, and now I'd pour myself into five juvenile delinquents who seemed to be getting worse most days instead of better. And that was a problem for me because I'd done this as a real sacrifice, you know, and so at least get better, so it reflects better on me. But when you get worse, and, and so I had all this anger in me, and, and and, and at me, at them, at God, and, you know, I'd pray and pray, God, if you just remove this one, things will get better. And then, lo and behold, somebody else would pop right into that spot, you know. And, and there were times I couldn't even go to devotions. I had so much anger toward these guys in my heart. And it seemed so easy for Hannah to do. 
so hard for me. And I remember at some point switching my prayer from God change these kids to God change me. And he took me up on that one and not on an easy path. But one of the things I discovered in that season was that I wasn't the 9 o'clock a.m. worker in the field that I'd always kind of seen myself as. You know, maybe 8.39 at the latest, I'm not going to be showing up at 3 o'clock. And I always read the prodigal son story as the older brother. And if you're an older brother, you're really going to hate that story because, you know, he voices your, what you're thinking already. And yet now I all, all of a sudden realize that I was the younger son in the story. And I was the five o'clock guy in the story. In my complete abject failure to pull this off. And the story meant something to me. It's like, God, you would take a person in at five o'clock. And God, you would take somebody who's so screwed up doing this stuff in your name and you would just embrace him and that's what those stories are about and if you see yourself as anything different than five o'clock and younger son you're going to hate it and you're going to miss the whole point of what grace is and I started to struggle with grace during that season and I remember even asking our staff because I didn't have any grace in me you know I'd already always defined it as being a nice person. And I'm from Minnesota, so we have something called Minnesota Nice. And it's really nice, but it only runs up to probably an 830 employee. And after that, you get another side of Minnesota, you know, that, that uh, starts to bite. And, I've, and so I asked our staff, what is grace anyway? What do you think it is? And I wrote down what they said on a, on a flip chart. Undeserved gift, forgiveness, God's blessing, unconditional love, and a free ride, somebody said. said, oh, really? Well, then what's the opposite? And so I wrote that down. Here's what they said. Accountability, control, standards, punishment, justice. I said, well, that seems kind of odd because both those are important. So it seems like grace is one side of the coin. And they said, yeah, it is. It's one side of the coin. I said, well, that's, that can't be true. Because when the Bible talks about grace, it's really the whole coin. So somehow grace has to be loving and accepting and unconditional love and justice and standards and all that. And I started to read, you know, there's over 200 times that that verse, that that uh, word charis, the Greek word in the New Testament for grace appears. Here's some of them. Romans 6, 4. We are not under law, but under grace. Romans 5, 2, it's by faith we've gained access into this grace in which we now stand. Romans eleven six. it's by grace we live, no longer works. If not grace, if not, grace would no longer be grace. Galatians 1, 7, I'm astonished you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and returning to a different gospel which is really no gospel at all. I said, grace has to be the whole coin. But what is it? It's more than being Minnesota nice. It's not like grace runs up until 9 a.m. or even noon, and then you flip over to standards and justice and tough love and all that. 
And, you know, I had all these seminary books. I just finished seminary, and so I started to go beyond what the meanings that I had understood that grace was, undeserved gift, etc. And true enough, um, God doesn't give us what we deserve. He's not fair. And I thank him for that. We don't get what we deserve. But I remember coming on the, the Bowers uh, New Testament. You might have to help me flip ahead to that one. And this lexicon, and, and looking up the word grace and what it means. And here's what it says. Charis, the divine influence on the human heart and its reflection in the life. Now that really changes everything. That grace is a completely unhuman characteristic. That the only way I get it is if God bestows it upon me. And the only way I give it is if I reflect it from me onto you. And the only way I tend to be open to getting it is when I realize that I'm an 11th hour slacker. And I'm the youngest son, true enough. And it, I'm open and now I can receive it and I can give it. And grace is a completely divine thing. By that definition, only believers in Christ can exhibit it. And yet, we're so known for the opposite. I think it's because we try to manufacture it. I was trying to manufacture being a good person in a house with juvenile delinquents, and it wasn't enough. God brings us to the end of ourself so that I can receive the divine influence. You know, the greatest command Jesus then gave, a new command I give you, John 13, 34. Love, in the same way I have loved you, love one another. I even started off, love one another. Subconsciously, but that's not what he said. In the way, same way I have loved you, extend that love to one another. That really changes everything. How to live by grace. And Romans 5 through 8 probably has the, 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 the most to say about grace and how to live in it uh, of anywhere in the New Testament. And um, I want to just focus on, you know, where Tom started this in Romans chapter 8, the first half of it last week. There's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that goes to the most victorious sort of apex of the end of Romans. We are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But you don't get to Romans 8 just out of the gate. Romans 5 through 8 and all of the other things we've been talking about in this series lead up to that place. And to go up to it, you know, I, I think it requires a, a backing up a little bit because most of us probably have a pretty good understanding of, I think Lou preached on, um, it's by grace you've been saved, not by works, lest anyone boast. We, you know, this is the 500th year since the Reformation, so we've been working on that one for a long time. That I'm saved by grace. Maybe the next 500 years, we'll have to focus on Colossians 2.6. In the same way you receive Christ, continue to live in him. That's a different thing. How did you receive Christ? If we went around, it's probably at a very low place, at a broken place where you realized you're really the younger brother. You're the 11th hour slacker. You can't do this thing. Even if you were raised in generations of faith, there's no grandchildren in God's kingdom. We all kind of have to get there the same way. 
And in the same way you received him, continue in him. What would that look like? Well, I'm just going to quickly go over the first couple of points from Romans chapter uh, 5 to get to Romans chapter 8. First thing is knowing that grace is who I am. It's my identity and my true self. That when I'm a new creature in Christ, grace marks my life. Grace, I bleed grace because it's who I am. I've received him and I live in him. That's what grace is. It's not being nice, and, and, and on, which only goes so far. It's receiving in a place of brokenness and giving it. And it's my identity. And Romans 5 through 8 really starts with just a first four or five verses that lay out all the rest of it. It begins in chapter, one of, uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, look at the tense of this. We have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. It's all in the present tense. Already have it completely. If I'm in Christ, this is who I am. This is what I have. My position is completely secured. It's my identity. And Paul goes through great pain in all of his letters. If you just read them sometimes, the first Three chapters of Ephesians, for example, tells you who you are before it ever tells you what to do. Chapters 4, 5, and 6. Now it's sons, fathers, mothers, children, employers, employees. This is how you now are. This is what you do, but not until you know who you are. Chapter 8 brings it back again. In, in this section of 5 through 8, actually chapters 5 and 6 are completely about who you are in Christ. And then he comes back to it in, in uh, chapter 8 again. Uh, verse uh, 15, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave to fear, but the spirit of sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. For the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Until I know whose I am, I don't know who I am. And it really changes everything. I don't know how you disciple people that you, you minister to, but I know for our work with kids in jail, they have all kinds of identities. Gang member, blood crip, addict, um, uh, liar, thief, whatever. All those go through. And one kid said, I, I know who I am on the street, but I don't know what it is to be a Christian. I don't know what, what does that mean? Who am I? What is my identity there? And the Bible says so much about that. You're forgiven a full-fledged son and daughter of Christ. You're complete in him. You're chosen, seated in heavenly places. I remember after a Bible study in one of the detention centers many years ago, this kid Ricky came up and wanted to talk to us, and he said, hey, I've been making weapons in my room. It's like, what do you mean weapons? Yeah, yeah I do it every time I get locked up because you never know if you're going to get jumped. I said, well, what are you talking about? What kind of weapons? Shanks? <laughs> Out of what? Combs, whatever, you know. I said, well, where are you keeping them? Under my bed. So I was ready for a little lecture. You know, you, if you do that, they're going to extend your time, blah, blah, blah. But I asked him, how do you feel about that? He said, bad. I can't hardly sleep. I said, well, that's because... That's not who you are anymore. And you can, make, you can still make weapons, but it's not, it's not who you are. 
doesn't fit. And he said, oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah, that's what, that's what I was thinking. And he, he lines up. He goes, yeah, I threw them all away. I said, oh, that's good. If you don't keep coming back to this, every voice tells you, you're just like your father, you're just like your mother, you're never going to amount to anything. You, and it's a lie. You can't exhibit grace if you don't know that it is already in you. It's who you are. Then he goes on and he says um, in this passage, chapter 8, this is right on the heels of the spirit who testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. He says, now we are children and heirs of God if we share in his sufferings. Oh. In order that we may also share in his glory. For I consider our present sufferings worth nothing compared to the glory that's revealed in us. Chapter 8, Romans, verses 17 and 18. Caps back into chapter 5, verse um, three and four. So it says that we already stand in this grace, but now we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. For the Christian, suffering is not just something that God helps us get to. There's only two ways that spiritual giants say that we transform spiritually, prayer and suffering. And Jesus could do it with prayer, didn't need suffering to bring him to prayer. Most of us, myself at least, don't get there except through this way. That suffering is a, in a, a, in a component that puts our old self to death. Romans speaks so much about this. Tom talked about it last week. The old me, the new me. Romans 7. You know, in, unless you really live and understand Romans 7, what a wretched man I am. Who can ever... Free me from this bondage of myself. Romans 7, you know, it says, I, me, and my, 59 times. Oh, I can't do what I don't want to do. I want to do that. I don't do that. I don't. I, on, and just like he's just wallowing in this stuff. Who can free me? And it says this, thanks be to God, it's already been done. Yeah. For the law of the Spirit has freed me from the law of sin and death. I just, I just have to receive it. But I often don't receive it until I'm really at that breaking point. Um, si Simone, Simon, well, grace fills the empty spaces, but it can only enter where there's a void to receive it. And it's grace itself that makes the void. When I see that the call is grace, and really what that is, and I don't have an ounce of it in me, it begins to open a space. And Romans 7 is so critical to get to the end of myself. Not to excuse it, justify it, try to make it less than, but what a wretch that I am. Who can free me from this bondage of myself? And then thanks be to God, it's already been done. Not so much of a theologian, Leonard Cohen. There's a crack in everything, but that's how the light gets in. And oh, I don't want to be that needy. I really don't want to be that younger son. You know, it's a humiliating place to think about having to bow at the feet of this father who you've ripped off and stolen. And 
And I don't want to be known as that 11th hour slacker who's come in, but the reality is that that is what I am. But it opens the possibility. It's what all of us are. Sort of trying to talk each other into that we're something more because we're not as bad as that other guy. And Romans 8 doesn't happen at the starting gate. Otherwise, it'd be Romans 1. To experience the overcoming power of the resurrection, I have to really sit in the reality of the suffering and what I am not. And I'm sure that for you, God's given you an adequate dose of that. I do love, as Paul said, and uh, Joe is a part of it, and so many here on Thursday nights, and, you know, going through the biblical basis of the 12 steps, and, and um, having been through that myself. And I, I came upon a, a book from Len, actually, uh, Keith Miller. I don't know if you ever remember the book he wrote, A Taste of New Wine. It had such a big impact on me many, many years ago. And then to find his book on the 12 steps, and hear his story that he got so famous over this spiritual book, The new, Taste of New Wine, and traveled all over the world and all of a sudden began to, I guess, un- believe his own bio and press clippings. and So much so that uh, he wasn't home very much. His wife left him, took his kids, and, and when, when she left him, all his speaking cancel, uh, arrangements got canceled, and he ended up at a low spot, an alcoholic angry at the church and everybody else. And, and so what happened? He found his way back through an AA group to God again at a very low, humiliating place. And it seems like the worst place I want to be, but it's the best place I want to be because on the heels of it, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit has set me free from the law of sin and death. And that's the third point, to courageously step into this new resurrection way of living. Henry Nouwen, such a brilliant theologian, taught at Yale and at Harvard and, and, you know, came to just find an emptiness in him, even though he was doing all these things. Is it really him or is it what I'm supposed to do to be really somebody? And... He had kind of reached the really somebody place. Sometimes you have the gift of an addiction, and I do say it's a gift because if you're an addict, either you're going to die or you're going to experience a transformation of a spirit-lived life through Christ. There's really no other way. But religious people, older brothers, they can go on forever and never be restored, just like the older brother in the story. He was never reconciled with his father. So Henry Nouwen comes upon that well-known Rembrandt painting in the 1980s, and he's just, tra- he's just fixed by it. He goes to the Hermitage in St. Petersburg to look at the original, spends four days just gazing at it. And first he really related to the four people in the background who were just observing this absurd thing. But he's such a, at such a broken place that he began to see himself instead as the prodigal son. And the father has a father's hand and a mother hand around him and notice that and the embrace of that and and it changed his entire way to see that this is me 
And out of this comes everything else. Left Harvard, went to Layarch, this community for mentally handicapped adults, and began to see God move in a whole new way of his life as a more than conqueror. The resurrection side, Romans 7 is a lot easier, even though it's pretty devastating, it's a lot easier place to live than what the courage that's required to live into Romans chapter 8. I just want to, if you have your Bible near you, it's on page 800. I want to read together this section of it, Romans chapter 8, uh, from 31 to 39. You won't read it out loud, but you can just follow. Because what shall we say in response to all of this? Like the bad news before the good news. If God is for us, who can be against us? For he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him give us graciously all things? For who can bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus who died and more than that was raised to life is at the right hand of God and interceding for us. I'm so grateful that when I wake up sometimes just in a terror and a panic that the Holy Spirit's already interceding before my mind gets even clear. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We've considered his sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, that word really means to win without having to fight. Fight's already been won. More than a conqueror. Do I have the courage to live into it? To step into that reality. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor future, any power, any height, any depth, nor anything else in all of creation is able or will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, what would it look like if you knew the end of the story and really believed it? That you already were more than a conqueror. That you didn't have to live your life to try to get it to be accepted. To try to be what everybody thinks you ought to be as a Christian. But you could now just live it out for God. Knowing that in the end it's well done good and faithful servant. Enter into my joy. And I just get to play it out. I just get to say God what do you want to do? To be recklessly living for him. Would that feel different? Oh, what if I screw up? What if I make a mistake? What if people, nothing can separate me. And that's why as believers, we could be the most daring and, and, and go the furthest out and experience the flip side. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains one. You imagine now it's harvest season. A seed that somehow brilliantly escaped ever having to be buried into the ground and dying is running around looking at these other big ears of corn and feeling like, well, how come I only got one? And he thought he was really being bright, you know, escaping the, the uh, being buried and escaping the resurrection. And I wonder how much our lives are like that, trying to keep from, I'm just holding on, I'm not going all the way down. And remaining as one. When all the way along the plan was this, that you become more than a conqueror. 
that, that what comes out of you is the miraculous God life and not the best version of you that you could muster. And when we do that, it's an ugly thing, isn't it? Trying to manufacture grace. Because it only goes till 9 o'clock. And the world knows it too. These people are not gracious, but then there are some who can embrace it. That the place I come is that broken son, but I'm the beloved one. And out of that comes something that's completely not me, the divine influence on my human heart and its reflection in my life. And you know, those are the things that change everything. I have to sometimes receive a bucket full to pass on a teaspoon, but a teaspoon is enough of the God life. As we close and the worship team comes up, We've been singing a lot of songs about who I am. And I just want to bring us back to this same verse we read a little bit earlier and give us some time to just reflect in that. Who am I? Do I really believe that I am who he says that I am? And if I am that, then what does that life long to do? Romans 8 only says, I, me, and my three times. Nineteen times it says, but the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit gives life. The Spirit. And you have the Spirit. Romans eight seventeen. Romans eight fifteen rather. If you receive the Spirit, you have not, sorry, you did not receive a Spirit that makes you a slave to fear. But you've received the spirit of sonship by which you call out, Abba, Father. Perfect love casts out fear. And when I see it in me, rather than trying to fix it, deny it, just acknowledge it. God, that's not me. You've not given me a spirit of fear, love and power and a sound mind. I surrender my life to you. I lay it down that you could bring something new up out of it. And that's his promise that he'll do every time.